welcome to the podcast Pod Ipsa Locator, a podcast for Connecticut trial attorneys by Connecticut trial attorneys, with your hosts, John Kennedy and Mike Walsh. Welcome to Pod Ipsa Locator, the podcast of the CLE Committee of the Connecticut Trialers Association. I'm John Kennedy, and today I have guest host Cindy Robinson. We have a very interesting show today. We're going to focus on a subject that strikes almost as much fear as tort reform in the hearts and minds of trial lawyers and personal injury attorneys whose practices, like most of us, include automobile and vehicular and truck accidents. It's also a subject that's frequently in the news. In fact, there were several articles today in the papers about this issue. Subject is automated driverless vehicles. We have a terrific guest today to discuss the numerous legal and practical issues created by this emerging technology. Cindy, can you introduce our guest today? Absolutely. It's my pleasure to introduce Daniel Hinkle. Daniel is the Senior State Affairs Counsel for the American Association for Justice, AAJ. His primary work is assisting state trial lawyer associations, such as the CTLA, throughout the country on facing difficult issues that involve the plaintiff's practice, including auto tort, medical malpractice, and product liability, just to name some. In particular, Daniel has become a subject matter expert on the topic of automated vehicles and the implications that they have to the plaintiff's bar. He has given dozens of CLE presentations to state organizations, as well as roundtable discussions and journal conferences regarding the trial lawyer's perspective on this issue. Daniel became a registered federal lobbyist when federal legislation emerged on the topic. And in 2020, he testified before Congress on behalf of AAJ on an automated vehicle hearing in the House Commerce Subcommittee on Consumer Protection. When Daniel is not a subject matter expert on this topic, you might find him in Lexington, Virginia, where he lives on a hobby farm raising endangered breeds of sheep and chickens with his wife and two children. So it's obvious that Dan, you're a very busy guy and we really thank you for making time for us this afternoon in this very interesting, complicated and controversial topic. And I'd like to start the program by asking you, how did you become a subject matter expert on automated vehicles? Well, thank you very much, John and Cindy for inviting me on to talk about that uh, this today. I got involved with automated vehicles when shortly after I started working at AAJ. Uh, so about six years ago, I came in and uh, as you said, my job is on the state affairs council. So I work with the state trial lawyers association. And the very first year that we got into the legislative sessions, there were 25 bills on driverless vehicles around the country. And this would have been in uh, 2015. And There are no driverless vehicles outside of a a handful that are being tested in California and Arizona and Florida and Texas. But at that point, there were there there were really only vehicles out in California. And yet it became this huge legislative issue. And they're diving into the weeds on what are we going to do about insurance? How are we going to handle who's responsible for a crash and all of these nuances and intricacies of the future of what is, as John alluded to, 
a huge part of the plaintiff's practice. You know, at least half of trial lawyers out there do some form of auto tort work. Even if it's not their main issue, it's something that all trial lawyers are, are familiar with. Uh, and it can be a part of a lot of different uh, trial lawyer businesses. And so it was such a big and important issue that we were focusing on. Uh, and there's no one out there that for me to call. You know, if I get a medical malpractice issue, my, my dad is actually a trial lawyer in Tallahassee, Florida. I can call him and ask him about the issues with tort reform on MedMal. If it's a product liability issue or some other issue, there are lawyers out there that do that work that I can call and ask about it. But there's nobody who's doing this work because this work doesn't exist yet. And so we needed someone to get into the weeds and follow all the nuances. And so I just took it. I, I, that's my background. I love diving into the weeds of this sort of stuff. It's fascinating to me. Uh, and it's been a fun subject for me to, to, to dive into and get to, to know all the intricacies on and meet a lot of great people along the way who've educated me. Met a bunch of our, our members, experts who did product liability work in the auto space that are becoming experts on driverless cars that I can call. And I just, I follow the news. I follow all of the, the developments out of these companies. And so it's kind of given me a good insight into exactly what we're talking about when we talk about automated vehicles, where the industry is at the moment, where it's going, why we get the impressions that we get, like the, what you've heard about and why those stories are in the paper, what's behind it and where, and where we are with all of that. And so that's, that's sort of where I've come from and where I am at this point. And so I'm, I'm really excited to talk about this issue. Uh, I mentioned that there were 25 state bills in 2015 that reached a high point of 43 different states, all having legislation on it uh, in 2017. It's kind of gone down a little bit since then, but that's because there's been a lot of federal legislative issues, which uh, as Cindy mentioned, I've been involved with too. So I'm happy to talk about all aspects of this today because it's a, it's a fun subject and I really enjoy it. Yeah, I think we've got a lot to talk about here today, today, Dan. And the first thing I want to get to is a question that has nothing to do with the legal or the legislative issues, but I kind of want to ask you a question about where we are technologically with respect to the vehicles. You know, today in the paper, there was one article about an accident in California where a driverless car hit a police car. There was also a second article about people YouTubing themselves without, without drivers. And I, in one of the articles, the third article was about California has a law that does not allow people to advertise vehicles as driverless vehicles. And Tesla says they don't. But meanwhile, Elon Musk is in the news saying that a driverless vehicle, the technology is better than a real driver. And so I want to start the, the discussion by where are we technologically? When, is, when are driverless vehicles going to be on the road? And are they reliable at this point? You know, where are we in terms of when this is going to happen? I think everybody's interested in that. Yeah, and that's a that's a great place to start with this conversation too, because it's it really kind of sets people's understanding of what we need to be focused on, uh, not only from your practice's perspective, but also from the law side and, and how we're going to develop all of that. And and the best way to, to to say it right now is that there are no driverless automated vehicles on the road outside of a handful of tests being run by Google's self-driving car company, which is now called Waymo, in Tempe, Arizona. There are a number of other companies that are building this technology that are allowing these systems to operate with a trained test driver in the vehicle. 
in California and in Arizona and Florida, Texas, and a handful of other jurisdictions out there, uh, as well as test tracks in Michigan and places like that. But in terms of like a consumer accessible vehicle that you could buy or own or get in and ride with, those are not automated vehicles right now, based on the way that we define what we mean by an automated vehicle. And there are technical ways you can get into the conversation, but the way that I like to describe it is this. If a vehicle qualifies as an automated vehicle, if we're, what you're talking about is an automated vehicle or a full self-driving vehicle or whatever, you wanna, whatever term you want to use, the difference there is that a company has promised you that you no longer need to be paying attention to the road, that you are not responsible for monitoring the driving environment and responding appropriately that that task has been automated. It's been handled by a system that's been installed on the vehicle. And that's what we're talking about when we're talking about building an automated driving system. What Tesla has done though, and it's specifically Tesla, there are a couple other companies that are building technologies that are similar to the Tesla autopilot. But specifically what Tesla has done is they've tried to have it both ways. Elon Musk is out there saying, our full self-driving system or our autopilot system is safer than a human driver right now. I think the last time I saw it, he said it was 10 times safer to have autopilot on than That's a human driver. Right. Uh, they call it autopilot. They call it full self-driving. They do all of the tricks that they can to try to convince you that this is an automated vehicle. But if you go look at the, the manual, you go look at the technical documents, the, the things that the trial lawyers are going to pull up and look at first, all of that says is that the human driver needs to be paying attention to the road, that they're responsible for the safe operation of the vehicle, that uh, it can turn off without warning, that you need to be paying attention at all times, yada, yada, yada. Like They have all of the warnings on one one side, but at the same time, their CEOs out there promising that you don't need to pay attention. And uh, he put out video where he's not holding the steering wheel, but Tesla's manual says you need to have your hands on the wheel at all times. He just consistently contradicts it, which it's been amazing to me to watch. There's been no one who's cracked down on that. Uh, NHTSA has the authority to address predictable abuse of a system. Uh, this could be classified as a vehicle defect. Uh, under the Federal Motor Vehicle Safety Act. California has that law that you mentioned, where it's it's not only is it uh, unlawful to advertise a vehicle as fully automated when it's not, but if you are doing a fully automated vehicle, you need to register, you need to get a permit, you need to uh, be submitting data to their regulator and everything like that, which Tesla is doing none of that. And so, so where we are right now in terms of this is that we have a lot of companies, well, Tesla is the first, but it's not just going to be Tesla. And I think it's really important to emphasize that, that Tesla got out front because they had a tech forward company. They were very aggressive in hiring the engineers needed to build this sort of system. They were very limited in terms of the, the, the consumer protections and the driver protections they put in place. But every single automaker in the entire world is developing that sort of system. This what's called a level two system or an advanced driver assist system that is designed to allow the vehicle to stay within the road lanes, to avoid running into the back of other cars on the highways, and to maybe even take on some of the other driving aspects. These systems are what companies want to sell in future vehicles. And all of them are going to have trouble with this line between the marketing teams wanting to oversell the capabilities of the vehicle and the engineers saying, no, 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 our system can't do that yet. Our system isn't capable of doing that yet. Just this past week, I was flagged to a reviewer of a Mercedes E-Class vehicle that was on, that they've posted on YouTube. I, I don't know if Mercedes was behind this or not, but 
he got early access to a vehicle and talked about their automated drive, their, their full self-driving system. That I, it's a self-driving car. Look how good this self-driving system is, but it's not. It's just like Tesla's autopilot. It's an advanced driver assist system. The human driver needs to be engaged in the monitoring the system and monitoring the roadway at all times. So that's where we are now. That's like the systems that we see on the road today. These are systems that need a human driver that are dependent on a human driver, but they may work 95 to 99% of the time. And one of the things that we know about these systems is that if you design them so that the human becomes bored, they're not going to do that job. You're going to get them distracted. They're going to start reading the paper. They're going to start looking at their phone. This sort of automation complacency is an extremely well-documented, extremely well-documented. In the the airline space, we had it with autopilot on planes. A bunch of planes crashed in the 50s and 60s because they found out if you automate the flying task, pilots lose track of everything and then they fall out of the sky. And so we need to find a way to get them involved. And so that's kind of where we are now. That's sort of the things that I expect we're going to see a lot of the technology today. But the other part of the question that you asked is where are we going? Or where is the full self-driving part of that? Right. Where's the full self-driving part of this? Now, full self-driving, this idea that the human driver can just turn off and go do something else or not even be in the car at all. It'll just pull up to your house and you'll get in and you'll drive off has been a has been lore within the automobile industry since the 1920s. I found a fantastic General Motors propaganda video from early 1930s talking about how the reason why cars crash is because of human drivers. And if we could just automate the driving task, cars would be perfect and they would drive perfectly. This idea that cars, if automated, would drive perfectly was developed not because it was a technological capability at the time. It wasn't. There was nobody who was even thinking that you could do that. It was designed as propaganda to blame human drivers, to blame drivers for all car crashes, not the broken steering wheel, not the drive shaft, not your defective tires or the defective uh, ignition switches or the way they... It was designed to displace product liability onto human drivers and to make people blame human drivers for all crashes. We see that rhetoric continue all the way through today. Because when you talk about automated driving crashes, one of the first talking points that comes out of the mouth of the manufacturers and the companies that are, that are pushing for laws on this that would immunize them from all liability is what they'll say is that if we let, get this technology on the road, we can eliminate 94% of crashes. And that's, that's what our members hear. That's what everyone hears is that if this technology is out there, it's going to be perfect. There'll be no crashes ever again. That's just not true. It's propaganda. It's always been there. They've always said it. And they've said it for reasons that have nothing to do with the idea that it could possibly be true. Um, Because the truth is automating the driving task is the hardest things that humans have ever really tried to do at this point with a computer in a real genuine investing billions of dollars sort of way. It's a lot easier to land a man on the moon than it is to train a computer system to handle the nuances and intricacies of dealing with four-way stops and school zones and just the day-to-day things that human drivers have to deal with while piloting a three-ton vehicle at deadly speeds. Because that's what we're doing every day. And it's one of the most intensive things that human beings have to do. It causes more crashes than anything else. It causes more harm than anything else. That's why trial lawyers are so involved in the auto tort system is because you're piloting deadly weapons 
or very destructive weapons on the interstate at extreme speeds every single day. And it's surprisingly, not probably not surprisingly, difficult to train a computer in order to do that. And so companies, pretty much since the 80s, there have been researchers and those out there promising that automated driving is about 10 years away since the 1980s. So we've gone like 40 years now, or almost 50 years now, where automated vehicles have been 10 years away. And to this day, if you go and you talk to the skeptics and the people out there who are like skeptical that the current state of the technology is there, they'll tell you it's about 10 years away. Huh. And, so, and so that tells me that there is an argument that this is just not coming anytime soon in any real conceivable way that we're not going to be able to tell human drivers, look, you don't have to pay attention to this stuff. We got it the whole way. Uh, there is there is a outside chance that it just isn't possible with current technology. But the thing that gets me gives me pause is there are companies investing tens of millions of dollars in this every other year. Like they are pouring money into this at Google, at General Motors, at Ford, at Amazon just bought a company out of California called Zooks. I mean, these are the biggest technology and automakers in the world including the Chinese companies, Baidu, Tencent, all of them, they're all investing in this technology and they're pouring money into it on the idea that they could do it. And there may be some ways that they can do it. And maybe it's not the you know, full thing that humans can do. Maybe it's something in between. But because there are so many companies pouring so much money into this, I have to imagine something is coming, something significant that will start small and then grow and expand just the way that Uber and Lyft did into all of uh, all of our members' practices. You know, like it started as this new, this weird thing that you could get in one or two cities out on the West Coast, and now it's everywhere. And it's getting to the point that the members I've, I've talked to enough members to know that you know I've never had an Uber case walk in the door, but I had somebody who came in the other day who said they were injured in an Uber crash, and now you're having to learn all about how their insurance works and how the companies work and everything everything like that. And so it took about a decade or two, but slowly but surely it got out there and it got into to the mainstream. And so it's hard to predict, but that's kind of the state of where we are as far as the technology goes. So Daniel, if we extrapolate and say that something is coming, how do we as trial lawyers grapple with the fault question? Because that's basically what the civil justice system is all about is who's at fault. And when you talk about these, I think in one of your presentations, you, and this was back in 2018, you said it was a $7 trillion business. So I don't know what that number is now, but how do we grapple with the fault aspect of it? Because that's the concern. If this is a thing of the future and something bad happens, how do we protect victims from what may happen from this automation um, and this technology, which is far from perfect? Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's where we've focused all of our uh, advocacy efforts, both at the state and the federal level over the past couple of years. And so I, it, to start, most people think when you get into, we're talking about automated vehicles. What we're talking about here is a vehicle that crashed. It's a car that crashed. And so therefore there's a defect with a car. And so we think about it as a product liability framework. And so when I talk to people, a lot of people think that automated vehicles means that auto torque goes away. There's more product liability, maybe less product liability because they'll be safer than human drivers. And that seems to be the consensus that people come up with. I'm not totally sold that that's the best way to think about this. I, and it's, it's still new, it's emerging, but I don't like the idea that driving torts would go away. That, that because they have automated the driver, therefore there is no driver and therefore there is no more 
auto tour. There's no more duty of care to other road users. I think one of the most important things that um, we can do, and we've pushed for this in state and in federal legislation, is to make sure that the company that built that car is responsible for all of those duties of care that a normal driver would have. They have that duty of care to other road users. They have the duty to recognize and adjust to the negligence of other road users, to avoid collisions, to comply with the rules of the road. And if they don't follow the rules of the road and they cause harm, then then therefore they're liable for the harm that they cause. These negligence duties, these driver duties need to be maintained and they need to be maintained by the company that built the system. The manufacturer of the automated driving system built it, they put it out there, they have promised that you don't have to pay attention to it, that the user doesn't have to pay attention to it. And therefore they need to accept the responsibility for as the driver. That's where we, that's what I focus on now because that's what we risk losing in the, in the idea that we're moving to, uh, to having these vehicles on the road. How they actually, how we actually do fault, how that case looks when it walks into your office it's going to depend a lot on the circumstances of the crash, right? Because there are lots of ways that an automated vehicle can crash, some of which look like a traditional product liability claim, some of which look like a, a driver's tort claim. Like if it runs a red light, it hits a pedestrian. You can think of that in either way. You could think of that as a product liability or as an auditory case. And you can bring it either way, depending on what's best under your state law. Maybe there's, maybe there's reasons why product liability in Connecticut makes that a more attractive option. That's great. My goal, our goal at this point is to preserve the optionality, to preserve the ability to bring whatever claim fits that particular circumstance in terms of being able to make sure that the courts are accessible for, uh, for, for folks. And I, I think that the only other thing that I really wanted to, to, to flag here is that I think it needs to be the manufacturer of the system and not someone else that's the driver that's responsible for the safe operation of the vehicle. I look at that from a technological perspective. They're the ones to control the automated driving system. They're the ones who can fix it if it's wrong. If what we're talking about is deterring bad driving, then the person who has the ability to drive better should be the one who's punished for bad driving. But I also recognize the implications of that, that, that what we're talking about here is, is suing Ford every time there's a red, <laughs> someone runs a red light. Or, or suing Google for, you know, uh, for, for an auto tour case, maybe where your damages are, are $10,000, $20,000. And that, I think there's, uh, there's, there's probably a whole wealth of things we can talk about there, so. Yeah, so that brings to mind things that as tort lawyers, we're always really concerned about, which are things like jurisdiction, number one, because if it's a Chinese company, as you mentioned, who, who, who put the driverless car together or the system together, and secondly, uh, insurance issues. Mm-hmm. So how, how are we going to work our way around those things? Do you have any thoughts about those things? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this, this, the jurisdiction issue is forefront in my mind. It is not something that legislators have wanted to engage with. We have, I've, I've put together sort of like a model approach to that. But it, because it hasn't been the big focus, it's been sort of not legis- legislated anywhere. I think the idea there though, is that if we're making the manufacturer the driver, if we, if we go back to that idea, states have an interest in retaining jurisdiction over drivers. You know, Massachusetts driver drives through Connecticut and causes a crash. Connecticut has an interest in being able to pull that Massachusetts driver into their state court. 
you know, if Uber is going to be operating a business in Connecticut, they want Uber, they want Uber to be able to be sued in Connecticut state courts. And so they've built that into their statutory frameworks. They've required or they've they've permitted their courts to have jurisdiction over those those foreign drivers as well as the Uber. Uh, in a lot of states, they require Uber to register and submit to uh, doing business in the state and subjecting itself to the state court's laws. I, I was listening just two days ago about consent jurisdiction, the Supreme Court consent jurisdiction requirements, and uh, there was a case being argued in in Georgia before their Supreme Court two days ago on that issue. I think we should be requiring these companies to consent to the jurisdiction of the states that they're going to operate their vehicles in. You know, Google has minuscule, like to the millimeter control over where its vehicle is driving on the road. They can certainly decide, choose whether they want to drive in Connecticut. And if they choose to do so, then they should be submitting to the jurisdiction of the state courts in Connecticut. Now, obviously that doesn't deal with the, uh, the federal versus state which court you're in because of diversity or things like that, which may require a federal fix, or we just need to look at that in more detail as these cases develop or as this goes forward. That's certainly something that's on my mind and I'm thinking about, but it's right. almost too soon to address it at this point. But on the insurance side of this, like that was one of the first things that, that was really important in the state legislative frameworks. And so one of the first states to pass legislation on this was California. In California, they required the manufacturers who are testing their vehicles uh, on the state on the roads of California have a five million dollar bond or self-insurance or an insurance product set aside to cover any liability that could arise for that uh, testing or deployment. That kind of set the standard for a lot of years. A lot of states had that five million dollar requirement in there until the auto manufacturers started trying to pass their own legislation. Now, the auto manufacturers don't want to pet five million dollars up. What they want to do is they want the owner to put forward whatever the state minimums are. So in, Cal in, in Connecticut, it's 2550, right? Like that's, that's the insurance wow. that the automated vehicle, that's what the owner would have to have covering the automated vehicle. Now it says covering the automated vehicle, which like, frankly, it doesn't make any sense because like, is that a product liability uh, insurance product? What does that mean? Uh, what they mean is that they would cover driver cause crashes, but who's the driver? And they don't want to legislate on that because they don't like the idea that the manufacturer is going to be the driver. They fight against that idea across the board. They want to make everyone else in the world the driver except for themselves. And so 2550, though, is what they put forward. Like whatever state minimums are, that's all we want to put forward. So that that their ideal world is you have this 2550 minimum insurance policy that may or may not be available depending on how the case law develops around those sorts of claims. But anything above that is a full product liability claim against Google or Ford or, or, or whoever. Like that's their idealized framework for how this, this all plays out. My God. We obviously have a much uh, different and much more consumer friendly approach to how we think it should be all, uh, all worked out as well. So. Wow. And following up on John's question, which, you know, jurisdiction and insurance, I've also read that um, there's a big push for forced arbitration that we're seeing more and more of. And I mean, what's your thoughts on that? Does legislation that you've seen address that? Obviously, that's something that no plaintiff would want to be would have to do. You'd want to write to a jury trial. Um, but we're seeing that put in so many clauses, any, you know, credit card companies, whatever the case may be. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So one of the main ways that the industry has talked about automated vehicles coming to market is through the ride hailing. 
through. That they would go to uh, uh, you know uh, a particular city, they'd set up shop with you know 100 vehicles or whatever, and they'd start operating a ride hailing service in competition with Uber or Lyft or in coordination with Uber and Lyft. Now, Uber and Lyft use forced arbitration. They always have and they always will. They're dedicated to it. They're wedded to it as their business model and they will not give it up. And right now, my understanding, I've yet to be corrected on this, is even if you're a passenger in an Uber and Lyft or, or you're a pedestrian walking down the street and you're hit by a, an Uber or Lyft driver, you can still sue that driver. You still sue that driver, try to hold them accountable. Uber has bought the million dollar insurance policy that's protecting that driver, but you still have the right to a jury trial to hold that individual driver accountable. When Uber or Lyft rips that driver out of there and you put in Google or, or Cruise or one of these other companies that's building these automated driving systems, you lose that individual that you can hail to court. And that company is going to want to take you into forced arbitration too. So that business model all of a sudden switches to the point that you no longer have a path to, or you don't have a way to get in front of a jury. And so if we don't address forced arbitration, that will be the way these companies are going to want to litigate these cases. They're, want, they're going to want to do that. Um, and so this has been one of our three pillars that we have demanded in any federal legislation addressing automated vehicles. We have to address this issue of forced arbitration, and we have to address it now before it becomes the practice of the industry. And so, so there have been a number of pushes for federal legislation at this point. Uh, going down to 2017, we saw bills filed and pushed through, and AJ has stepped in to say, we can't, we're not going to sign off on allowing, on, on, on allowing these vehicles to come to dominate the roadways if we don't address this issue of forced arbitration. Because forced arbitration, it's a, it's a secretive rigged process where the client has no access to a jury and no access to, to, to the public courts. The, bias, the, the arbitrator could be biased in favor of the company who has an insider's benefit if they're the one that's always a party to these arbitration proceedings and the plaintiff is, is, is a one-off. A one and you know you don't have access to the same discovery potentially. And the verdict and the end result is all secretive. It's all kept quiet. And if one of the goals of a public common law tort system is to set what the rules are, who's, who's responsible for a crash so that we all know, so that the company knows, so that we know, pedestrians know, the public knows in a public forum, who's responsible for a crash, you lose all of that if it's forced into arbitration and you can't get access to a, a, a jury system to be able to, to render a fair and impartial verdict. And so this has been one of our number, our, our three pillars. You got to do, we avoid preemption, obviously, no, no federal preemption. We need state common law remedies. Um, as I mentioned, the, the driver needs to be the manufacturer. Uh, the manufacturer needs to be the driver, I guess. And the, but no forced arbitration. No forced arbitration uh, is one of the most important things that we can have in this, because otherwise it will dominate every single one of these crashes. That's interesting. I, I'm wondering, Dan, have there been a lot of, um attempts to get immunity, first of all, and, and something else you said made me think of the issue about that we have in a lot of accidents now is that all the cars have black boxes. Are the manufacturers of these systems going to be required to turn over the data or download the data? And those kinds of issues certainly would be important, it seemed to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the black box issue is, is something that's been heavily talked about about and has been addressed in some versions of federal legislation on this issue. There are two ways that the manufacturers are looking for federal legislation on this. 
The first is they want to be able to build a large number of vehicles that are exempted from current federal motor vehicle safety standards. And you may think, why, why would you want an exemption from current federal motor vehicle safety standards? And the reason is that they, there are federal motor vehicle safety standards that would require things like, uh, like side view mirrors like access to certain vehicle controls, that if you're gonna build a vehicle that is dedicated to automated driving, that has no steering wheel, has no pedals or anything like that, you need an exemption in order to build that. Uh, there's been one company that's been granted that, it's called uh, Neuro, they're a delivery company. They build slow, uh, low speed delivery devices that was granted an exemption from NHTSA in order to build them and put out, they have a maximum of 2,500 that they can build and produce every year. As part of that exemption process, Neuro was required to gather and maintain all of the data on their vehicles and report all of the crashes to NHTSA. And so they're required to, to, to sort of build the systems required in order to fulfill their exemption. And so they have to build that and they have to gather that information and presumably it would be available in litigation involving one of those vehicles as well. The other way though, is to just rule make and create new federal motor vehicle safety standards that would apply to automated vehicles and allow you to, 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 to get around this exemption process as well as sort of pave the way for, for that. And as part of that process, what you would do is you would update the black box requirement in order to account for all of the things that you'd want to, to be gathered in an automated vehicle. The regulators are recognizing the need to gather that information, but it's currently not captured by the existing black box requirement. That's all sort of like physical data about how fast you were going at 30 seconds before impact and things like that. But that wouldn't uh, cover like whether the automated driving system was engaged at the time, when it was engaged, what the history of it was, all of that information. Now, requiring it is different from the fact that I think the companies are just gonna be gathering this material all the time anyway, and storing it. And so your question comes down to what are their record retention policies regarding that information? Is it something that's deleted within 30 days? Is it deleted? In 30 days, even if there's a crash, like they shouldn't they be gathering and holding on to it. I think there's going to be a lot of that. But the truth is, like, they're gathering tons and tons of data. It's all going to be proprietary. Every, I think that's a bigger issue here. Every single one of these companies is building their own automated driving system. So the Google system is different than Cruises, is different than Ford's, is different than anybody else's. It's all full stack proprietary. And the data that's coming off of it, you're like, you need that company in order to access and retrieve it. We already see this with Tesla. Tesla at the beginning for many years didn't have the, 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 the black box, didn't have the, the sort of required physical characteristic like you need to capture all this data because it's actually only voluntary under the federal or under the regulations. So they just weren't doing it. They changed their software so that they created one of these things. And so now they are gathering it, but they're also gathering tons of other information that they themselves are the only ones who can access. They don't have a third party system that can come in and access all of that other information. And so you create this dependence on the company to give you that data. And they and you see it with Tesla, they'll selectively release that data when it benefits them. And they'll withhold it if it doesn't. And so uh, there's a crash in Texas uh, a couple of weeks ago where the, the driver, where the owner got into the driver's seat and apparently engaged the system and then got into the back seat or got into the passenger seat and it crashed into a tree. You saw Elon Musk tweeting within 48 hours, autopilot was not engaged at the time of the collision. It's yeah. like, well, did, 
did the system turn it off a quarter of a second before it right. hit the tree? Or like, what, what, what? There, clearly there's more to this story, but you're not going to tell that side of it. You're just going to tell the thing that benefits you going forward and you're going to make them fight over everything else. And I think that's a bigger issue. And that's something we're definitely paying attention to in terms of federal legislation and regulation, making sure that there's an even playing field in terms of access to that data. Uh, Daniel, is there anything that as trial lawyers with this coming down the pike at some point that we should be thinking about or be wary of in terms of legislative efforts, or is it, you know, something that we kind of have to just take a wait and see approach? I know Connecticut's not one of the states, I think, that has any legislation at this time. I don't know whether there's certain states where there's very bad legislation that can kind of creep over, seems to be having, you know, pull, so to speak. But w- what should we be doing other than just kind of listening in awe and fright? As yeah. that you're saying? <laughs> I mean, I... I, I think that so Connecticut has had as it has had legislation that's been introduced and uh, and and put forward. I believe there was a study process that was eventually enacted. But it, and I, and through all of that and working with CTLA, I think the approach that y'all have taken has been right. You've engaged. You've gotten involved. You've been engaged from the very beginning because that's that's my number one advice on legislation is. The rules of this industry, which, as we talked about, may not be here for 20, 30 years, even, but the rules are being written right now, mm. which is just crazy to think about. But that's yeah. exactly what is happening is we are setting the rules. And once they're out there, once they're delivering some value to the community, it's harder to put the genie back into the box and to get the better rules up front, unless, unless what it comes with is unless those rules are written in blood. And that's that's what um, there's a lot of talk about this, at least at the federal level, in terms of getting ahead of the inevitable crashes in the automated vehicle space, the way that they should have done in the airline industry. The FAA talks about that all of our regulations were written in blood because they came on the ends of horrific crashes that occurred. And it took that crash to energize people to come back in and to fix them and to write the rules uh, the way they should be. I hope we write the rules right the first time, but I know that there are states that have not. And I look at them the same way that I looked at, uh, that we would look at uh, other bad regulatory regimes. It's like that is permitting dangerous practices that have an inevitable consequence. And we need to be ready to pounce when that consequence happens and point out that this could have been prevented. But we don't need to do that with automated vehicles. We're still ahead of the game. We still have time to write the rules the right way, to create the correct incentive structure so that these companies have it within their own capacity to choose when they're gonna be deploying on the road and that they make that choice based on what's safe. What's, if they know they're gonna be held accountable for every crash they cause, they will choose when to deploy in a safe and responsible manner. And they will choose to do uh, they will hopefully choose to do the right thing should their technology prove to be more dangerous than they thought it was once it's out there. But that being engaged right now, both at the state and the federal level, uh, engaging with CTLA, engaging with AHA, and staying involved because that's that's who's uh, on the front lines right now. Well, thank you very much, Dan. This has been really educational, and we'd love to have you back as things develop on these uh, on these areas. You know, it strikes me that almost all the cars we're driving now have some pieces of this puzzle. They have the automatic braking and the lane change warnings. So there's gradations of this stuff too, but uh, I, I suppose we'll learn a lot more as we go forward. And if I can, just real quick on that, because yep. you raise a really good point, because 
If there's one thing that I think automated driving will do to greatly increase the safety of automobiles going forward, it's this. It's that when companies have to take on the responsibility of the driver, they really focus on those safety technologies that protect all drivers. So automatic emergency braking, lane keeping, all of these technologies that guardian, that protect both the, the pedestrians and the bicyclists and those outside the vehicle, as well as the, the occupants of the vehicle from a crash in any regard, that's the technology that will prevent crashes. That's what makes driving safer. Whether it's installed on an automated vehicle or a human-driven vehicle, it's the same technology and it will increase the safety of our roads and make things better and prevent many of the horrific crashes we see. That technology being developed will only get better if the companies are taking responsibility for, the, uh, for their systems. So, Thank you again. Thanks so much, mm -hmm. Dan. Thanks, John. Thank you, Cindy. Thank you very much. I look forward to, to the next time we get to speak. All right. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us on Pod Ipsa Locator. The number to contact the CTLA is 860-522-4345. Their website is located at cttriallawyers.org.